flies high, way up in the sky. It sees above the human eye, a different perspective, a broader directive. In doing so, it becomes more effective. Welcome to The Legal Eagle, a podcast where I examine aspects of the law that I'm passionate about. I'm your host, Sarah Mae Thomas, and my aim is to have conversations that will empower both professionals and the everyday person on the street. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Legal Eagle. I am joined in today's episode by Candice, who is a successful lawyer in the Department of Transport as well as the founder of Legal Brew, a blog which aims to demystify the law and lawyering for lawyers, law students, and the generally curious. Welcome, Candice. Oh, hi, Sarah. <laughs> so nice to be on your podcast. It's pretty exciting. It is. And if you're listening to this podcast on Spotify or any audio podcast app, you should jump onto YouTube and see that I am in a Melbourne-esque looking cafe. I've got a virtual background on Zoom. And Candice has a beautiful painting behind her of a red lady dancing in the rain. <laughs> yes. <So. laughs> that is not me, though. That's not me. I think there was a painting that we picked out somewhere in Croatia. So oh, wow. Was, was, I think it was Dubrovnik. So if I'm not wrong. Yeah. Um, so okay. it's sort of like memories from travel. Oh, we'll be talking a little bit about traveling in today's yes. episode, but yes, Candice and I have actually been friends since we were 12 and a half. <laughs> I had to put the half in there. We both moved to <laughs> Melbourne from Singapore the same year in 2001, and we yep. actually met in our high school car park. Do you remember that, Candice? I do remember. <laughs> it was quite funny. Well, you yeah. remember the story and we always reminisce about it. Yes. Well, both of us had Singaporean accents, less so now, but we both kind of picked up. Oh, and we were like, are you from Singapore? <laughs> and we both became really uh, yeah. good friends after that. Yeah, it was. It was like an automatic bonding session over, Absolutely. you know, the accent. And then we're like, oh my God, another Singaporean. Yeah, another one so of great. me. <laughs> yeah, it was really great. So that was, yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, I mean, Candice, I have so many memories of the both of us. Like the time we tied our shoelaces together before General Assembly and we were late. And then the time that we snuck out of our house at Marshmead to gaze at the stars. Oh, for listeners, maybe they don't know what Marshmead is. So do you want to tell listeners what Marshmead is all about? Yeah. So I think whenever we say Marshmead, we get all excited and it's like Marshmead. Yeah. But uh, for everyone else, it's sort of a two-month long cabin and camping trip to the edge of Victoria. So the east side of Victoria is about a six and a half hour drive east of Melbourne. Wow, I forgot and how far away so, it is. Yeah, it was quite far. I had to Google that actually. Yeah. I couldn't remember how long it took. Yeah. But you basically have eight to nine 15-year-old girls <laughs> living yeah. in one big cabin house. And that was really a source of many funny stories, obviously, when you're 15. So, like, yeah, I remember when we did, you know, hiking. Yeah. You remember going through, like, the mud and the sand dunes. Yeah. And, like, after three days, you're just like, okay, I'm done. I'm done. I don't need a shower anymore. Yeah. I think you spent all day, too, like, feeling like you need to have a shower. Yeah. So, it's, like, essentially school in the outdoors. You cook for your members of your house every evening like dinners. And then I feel like an important skill I learned was avoiding cow pats. Like, <laughs> sorry, yes, like, I remember that. Yes. Every, everywhere you I went spent, was cow pats. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I spent like the first month, like literally stepping into everyone that you could possibly step into. And then I was like, this has got to stop. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> Did we come up with any formulas of how well it was just being like ultra I think it was just like, we look were... at the ground and just jump. <laughs> oh, so and many then, good memories. Yeah. 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 So, and then I think one time we also, one last funny story, we went through a gigantic box of fire starters. I think maybe there were like 30 in them. I did not try and remember start this. our fireplace. <laughs> and like, I remember our teacher came in and he was like, what are you guys doing? We're just like, we're trying to start a fire in our like fireplace. And he's like, you went through all those like fire starters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yep, okay. Have... For the record, you can only use one. 
you um, can, <laughs> yeah, and we had to ration like Milo. Do you remember like the, the huge yeah. Milo debacle of 2003? So what had actually happened was there was a, a Milo thief and we couldn't work out who this Milo thief was. <laughs> So Milo was like black gold in Marshmead because we it couldn't was. have lollies, we couldn't have sweets. Yeah. And so yeah. Milo was this one source of a sugar fix that we could have. And yeah. there was like a town I, yeah. meeting on who stole the Milo jar from our house. That was awful. I guess it's sort of where you think about it from a legal point of view. You're just yeah. like, that was a very basic form of justice yeah. in like a, a public hearing. forum. Yeah. But, oh my goodness. Yeah. So many good memories. So Candice and I were actually in a lot of similar classes in high school. We were both in advanced math class. We did the IB. We were in the same German class throughout high school. So aside from the very similar backgrounds that both of us came from, Candice and I knew that we wanted to study law. After high school, both of us took slightly different pathways. And I remember we would meet up at Seven Seeds Cafe when you were doing your second degree, your JD. And I had, I think, was doing my law thesis at the time. Both of us took different parts. You did economics. You did a master's in law. You've been a lawyer, a senior associate for a Supreme Court judge. You could have been an astrophysicist. Wow. Well, not really. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you could have. Probably not the last part, but... Yes, so definitely not an astrophysicist. So maybe you can tell listeners about your journey and how you are where you are now. Yeah, going all the way back to the start. Well, I think in high school, we were both pretty excited when Legally Blonde came out. Mm -hmm. I remember we both talked about how, you know, and I think especially you were particularly like... I was so excited, yeah. I knew very early on that Sarah was going to go and do law because... I just thought, you know, this person is so passionate about justice and all that. And I knew that you were going to do it. For me, I sort of took a slightly different turn towards the end of high school because I really became a bit of a physics geek after I did some work experience at an astrophysics department Mm -hmm. at Suburn Uni. But yeah, eventually after spending about six years there, I really got excited about becoming a scientist. So that dream of I guess, which you always had constantly, wasn't the same in my case. So I decided to take up a Bachelor of Commerce in Science, double degree. By the end of first year or sort of second year, I knew that it wasn't quite the right move for me, especially the science part. Like, I remember being in a physics lab in my first year and having to work with this person who was literally just clowning around in Mm. the lab. Mm. And I just thought, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't like writing up lab reports. I'm pretty average at math. I mean, I can't say I love it. Mm. So I had to, in the end, by my third year, I was like, okay, I'm going to have to drop this science part. I really enjoyed commerce and economics, but then I was like, nah, I have to do something else. And that's when I decided I would go back and revisit law as an initial passion. But yeah, I want to talk about you, Sme. Like... Ah. <laughs> You know, you had, I think, quite a consistent love for law and justice. I did. And I remember you went straight into sort of Monash doing law and arts. Yeah. And that was, yeah, that was really fantastic. I mean, I was inspired by how committed you were from the very start. And I think it's been a true calling for you. I think yeah. for me, I really felt like it definitely is a calling because yeah. I feel like my calling is to help the underprivileged and not just underprivileged, yeah. but broken people. And mm-hmm. I think like growing up in Sunday school and having those Christian values, that kind of shaped who I am yeah. today as well. Yeah. And everyone takes a different path, a different journey. Sometimes you know at 18 that you want to be a lawyer. Sometimes yeah. it takes a bit more time and there's nothing yeah. wrong in different parts. Both of us are very happy in what we're doing now. And I guess for me, there was not really any other option except for law because I just couldn't see myself. And I totally identified with Reese Witherspoon in Legally Blonde, maybe not 100%, but I love that she was so bubbly and like pink and not like a standard, typical lawyer. And that's how I've always seen myself. I'm not like, you know, always wearing black type lawyer. I don't fit in any one box. And I think it helps that at Monash, especially, I had a lot of friends who were not you know, traditional or orthodox, and that encouraged me to keep going. 
but I remember every time I came back to Singapore, everyone, like whenever I did an internship, everyone would ask me the same question. Like, are you sure you're a law student? Like, are you sure you want to do law? And I'd be like, why did they say that? I think because they had a cookie cutter idea of what a lawyer should look like. And I think maybe how they should behave. And they were probably like, you're too bubbly to be a lawyer. You're too happy to be a lawyer. But I think it really helped to have friends who were similar to me. Well, not similar, but like, atypical and unorthodox and untraditional so I was like oh stuff them like if they think that a lawyer should look a certain way or behave a certain way then that's okay yeah so I think that's been my journey as well like to learn to not care about what others say about you and just run your own race go your own journey I totally agree I think we've always been like in that mindset anyway I think both of us always have had our own objectives in life and I think perhaps sort of our faith as well has been a big part of that like being able to say you know actually you need to take the broader perspective and it's not all about self or you know competing with others and it's about traveling your own path absolutely and I think that's what we've always seen in each other which I think is really nice yeah yeah so I find it interesting that people said you know oh I can't see you as a lawyer like in my mind, I'll be like, I always want to go to Sarah May because she has so much empathy and, you know, she actually cares about people. It's not just about her own career mm. or things like that. So I, I knew, you know. Oh, thanks, Candice. If anyone looked for a lawyer in Singapore, I'll be like, yeah. <laughs> So Candice, yeah. just going one step back, you would have been yeah. 19 years old in that lab with that annoying, clowning oh, man. partner. Love it. Were you like, I mean, it's very hard at, at 19 years old to make that decision because you've got obviously pressure of society. So you're not fully confident in who you are. Was it hard to drop that science part and own those it feelings? It was. Yeah. Yeah. It was incredibly hard. Like, it took me until the end of my third year when I decided, okay, I'm going to actually drop it. I'm going to make the jump. And it was, I think part of me felt like, oh no, I kind of failed. Not in a bad way, but sort of, I thought I would go down this path, but it turns out that it wasn't right for me. Yeah. And that's totally okay, as I found out, because when I started the Juris Doctor at Melbourne, that was an incredible experience. I knew from two months in that law was going to be my passion. And I just thought, okay, that's really, really interesting that I came around to it through a very roundabout way. Uh, It's interesting how things kind of find you in some way later on, even though you might think that you've decisively chosen another path. So yeah, that was really, really interesting. And I think a lot of uni students, high school students, lawyers can learn from this anyone can learn from this as a life lesson that if you feel that you're going down a pathway that you feel is so fundamentally not you You, to own up to that and say look I might have wasted two years but it's not a wasted two years you've learned something but it's if you don't do anything about it then you're just going to spend more time convincing yourself when in fact you could be doing something that's true to you two months into law school you knew that that was your passion Yeah, definitely. Which, I mean, in some ways is very fortunate because I also Mm. knew people who within their first semester knew that law wasn't for them. Mm. And that is, again, a much harder thing to leave because obviously law, unfortunately, or fortunately, the profession is linked with prestige. And like to actually leave law school and say, actually, this is not the career path for me is very courageous. And I think anyone who leaves is perhaps more courageous than many people who stay. And yeah, it's fascinating. But I think like having that early experience of realizing you haven't taken the right path has sort of helped me later on mm. when I got to big, what you call big law and you're working at a big law firm, you're working 12 to 16 hours a day, yeah. every day, and then weekends as well. Wow. And then realizing that, oh no, it's happening again. Mm. I've taken a pathway which at the start was really good for my training. Not always, because you don't always do like educational stuff at the start. Doing tasks, be, like, yeah, you could be like a, a big part. Yeah, stably they're putting folders together. You're not gonna yeah. learn that all that much from it. Running trolleys down to court. Mm. I mean, seriously, you exercise <laughs> those arm muscles, <laughs> but dude, they don't teach you anything. So yeah. I think 
for anyone who thinks, oh, you know, if I don't go into big law, I'm going to be stuff. That's completely untrue. As I think your journey has told you, like you've had great training. And I remember like when I was in my first or second year, you were doing like way more advanced stuff in yeah, your in work than firm. I was. Yeah, in a smaller firm. Yeah. You know, doing appearances, like doing all these submissions. Mm. And I thought, that's incredible. Like all the things that they sold us at law school and that people wanted to do while at law school is not always true. You yeah. have to look a bit broader than that. Absolutely. And I wish I had heard people like you, Candice, when I was in law school, because I had bought into the lie that big law was the best, the only way. I want to work in a big city law firm with my dream. Like <laughs> it's, it's this or nothing. Like if I haven't come this far to only, so my ideal job was working in a big law firm and I was so disappointed. I was like gutted in fourth year uni when I had quite high achieving friends who got like 11 clerkship offers, you know, 10 clerkship oh, offers. Oh, I don't know anyone who got 11 clerkship yeah, offers. So <laughs> I had zero clerkship offers and I was so devastated because I was like, what do you mean? Like, and I went for like a couple of interviews and they would be like one hour of ask me non-law related questions, which was fine, but it never eventuated into a clerkship. And that for me was a yeah. big deal in fourth year uni. But now looking back, it's okay that I didn't have a clerkship because I had yeah. other opportunities and internships that opened other doors. And in yeah. fact, the path less traveled was the best path for me. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, obviously, you've learned so many things along the way, which yeah. I think only smaller law firms can really teach you. And you sort of set up your law firm and done other things that I think only people our age, many people we know can only envy because in a good way, because obviously not many people have at first the courage to go and start their own thing, but also the skill set to actually go off and do their own thing. I think that's just an incredible story. Oh, thanks, Candice. So, yeah. So you and I both love traveling. So I would thought yes, we, we do. talk about your Hong Kong experience, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> maybe my like Ghana and Italy experiences mm -hmm. so do you want to tell listeners yeah. about your your time because I think you did a master's in Hong Kong from what I remember yeah so it was sort of a combination I don't want to call it a junket but I kind of felt like it <laughs> <laughs> so it was great though so Melbourne University JD actually had the option of sending people to overseas joint study programs and one of them was the Chinese University of Hong Kong and obviously I thought, you know, actually it'll be a great experience to be in another place for a semester because I've never done an exchange yeah. for university. So I thought, okay, this would be a good opportunity. And this one semester experience led to being in the Masters of Chinese Business Law course, and then they would grant a master's at the end. But I think I was really interested in the experience. This sort of went along and yeah, it was fantastic of all the things that you know, I was involved in. And I think the main thing that really stood out for me was just connecting with other people from other jurisdictions. So yeah. there were students from you know, not just Hong Kong, but Germany, France, China, Australia, the Czech Republic, Mexico. And wow. that really started my fascination with cross-jurisdictional mm. areas of law. But obviously there's the culture side. And it was fascinating because you got to talk to, which you never do in a, an Australian university or university of any local jurisdiction, yeah. differences in different countries yeah. and perspectives. And I found that really fascinating because we all have these assumptions about what justice is mm. or what you know, it means to be fair. And I think once you start talking to people beyond your own bubble, you realize that actually we do things in a very similar way or sometimes we don't. And I found that fascinating. I think my final paper that year was about, it was quite bizarre, but um, I had some interest in tax at the time. So I wrote a paper about the cross sort of country jurisdictional differences in Australia and China wow. around tax avoidance. And that was really fascinating to see the differences that's amazing Candice yeah but there was a very little study in the end <laughs> I think there was more <laughs> like spending time with rooftop bars 
Yeah. At bars, there was a lot. At rooftop bars. They were really good. In, Hong Kong they were is really pretty good amazing rooftop bars. They, so. Yeah, they do. They do. And the people are lovely. Yeah. So, but I want to talk about your experience because you didn't just go to one place. You went to, you know, Italy. You went to Ghana. And, yeah, I did you know, a bit like, of traveling. Yeah. Um, well, I think it started off with Italy. So Italy yeah. was through the Monash Law Prato program. So Monash was gifted a beautiful medieval building, which it uses for its classes. And I was doing an exchange there for six months. And I was based in Florence for about two of those six months, but did travel for the rest of the time. So like you, not so much study. It was more like planning our weekend getaways to Morocco or France. Sounds or, familiar. Uh, we went to Bruges for breakfast one day. That is amazing. Oh. Bruges for breakfast. <laughs> well, Alliteration. You, yeah, alliteration. Well, I think because my Moroccan ticket was 20 euro from Florence. So when the tickets are that cheap, you just every weekend you want to travel to a different European city. So that was fun. I have an interesting story, actually. I was lactose intolerant at the time. Uh, And I was in Prato getting my usual soy latte. And I think I didn't order it correctly. So I told the guy, vorre un soy soya latte and anyway uh, and then cappuccino maybe I said like two different kinds of coffee so I'm looking at this guy giving me a glass of soy milk and then a cappuccino (laughs) and I looked at him like oh my goodness I think there's been a cross translation and in walks in this girl who's said excuse me were you trying to order a soy latte and I was like oh my goodness you sound Australian like who are you you sound really nice and then she whipped out her amazing Italian and then she and I became really good friends so I was recently at her wedding last year and so those kind of experiences like serendipitous kind of experiences I had quite a few of those during my travels so yeah Yeah. uh, Italy was fun we did trial practice advocacy so we learned how to run a court hearing how to do cross-examination of witnesses and I think one weekend our examiners were not contactable because they had all gone to Turkey but (laughs) for a holiday holiday Um, yeah but everyone was in that European summer holiday mode but it was fun and then after that before I went to Italy I went to Ghana because I figured since I'm doing travel I might as well go to Africa and I think what had happened was my brother was doing here in Oxford and he had gone to Africa. So I was inspired by him. And I was like, well, if my brother can go to Africa, then surely I can. But my parents were not so convinced. So I had to do a PowerPoint <laughs> presentation on why I should go no. to Ghana. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so I ended up in Ghana because it was the safest of all the possible African countries. Yeah. And it was a really good experience. I got to do all the human rights work with like children's trafficking and then I did some work with women's property rights in the rural areas. So lots of interesting, unusual experiences that like they are incredible experiences. Yeah. Because and, you know, most people don't get that insight. Yeah. And I'm yeah. I'm really grateful because when I did eventually do my honors thesis, like whenever I was writing about women's property rights, I think Oh, do you remember that time I went to that village and spoke to that chieftain and, you know, we had these conversations and it's just like etched in the recesses of your memory and it just makes an impact on you. Yeah, but, it does. I mean, it was not all, it was not all work work in Ghana. It was also lots of fun. We went to like the waterfalls and we did lots of day trips. And I remember on one day trip, this 17 year old asked me, lady, can you marry me and take me back to your home country? <laughs> And I was like, no, you're 17 years old. Like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. So Ghana was fun. And then after that, I think I was just on a roll. So then I applied for a Monash University Kassin Center internship. So Global yep. Center internship. And they sent me to Malaysia and Geneva to do some work with CEDAW. So that that's was, amazing. That was fun. It was just being exposed to all kinds, like you were yeah. in Hong Kong. Just yeah. Things that you're not normally yeah. exposed to, you get exposed to. And then that broadens your perspective, the way you think about the law. So after that, like you, I started doing a lot of cross-jurisdictional comparisons. Like every essay I did was, what is it like uh, in really? Australia? Yeah, and then let's do a case study in Africa. Let's do a case study in Geneva. And I think that's that it was, wonderful. It was just like, well, how are other countries doing the same thing? 
that we're doing in Australia and how yeah. they're doing it differently and what can we learn? Yeah, I think it's fascinating when you think about, you know, all these different systems. Like it's so different from other specialty like engineering where same rules of physics apply everywhere but Mm. when you're sort of talking about social norms and what people accept in a certain country as opposed to another I find that incredibly fascinating I guess looking into the human condition at any given point in time yeah so yeah that's incredible I think one thing that's come out as well is that we're both really fascinated about how you can empower less privileged communities. And I think a huge part of your work now is really about helping the people who come to you for advice. Did you want to chat a bit about that? Well, it was a slow process to come to family law. I don't know whether I told you, Candice, but in high school, I wanted to do law because I wanted to be a family lawyer. I might not have really advertised it, but it was kind of in my heart. (laughs) But then going through law school, I was like, no, I'm going to be a diplomat. I'm going to do exciting things and work for like UN. And also like in my mind, I was like, okay, family law is people getting divorced. I don't want to help people get divorced because, you know, Jesus hates divorce. I mean, like that was my thinking. And so I like kind of avoided family law, like the plague. I didn't even do family law clinics at Monash. I didn't touch any of that. Didn't do any internships in family law. And it was only when I was doing in a bigger law firm and I was doing like insurance litigation. I came to a point where I was like, I like personal injury. I do. But (laughs) And you are helping people because you're claiming compensation for people who have been hurt mentally and physically. But Mm. then working for insurers wasn't really sparking my joy. It was the bad guys. And then what had happened was a lawyer approached me and said, look, Sarah May, I think you have a lot of empathy and I think you'd be really good at family law. And I was like, no, like I've been avoiding this like the plague. Why would I do it? And as I did it, I realized that... I had been running all along from something that was actually my calling. And it took a while. I was 26 when I got into family law. And when I did do it, it was like every part of me just like, oh my goodness, this is why I did law. This is why I'm helping people. And it was not just divorce cases between a husband and wife. It was like children, especially that have been victims of abuse or even domestic violence, harassment cases. Or even cases where like the wife fell into a coma halfway through a divorce and didn't know that she was divorced. Oh, wow. Yeah. So those kind of cases where I was like really helping people to get a result that would allow them to move on with their lives. And yeah, so it was really a journey of helping not necessarily the underprivileged, but those who had been had very difficult circumstances thrown onto them. Yeah. So that's how I stay passionate in this area because it's something that brings me joy by helping others, by showing them a different way. There is, yes, your history might have been rubbish. You might have had abuse. You might have had harassment, but your future doesn't have to be like this. And I think that's what. Yeah, I think that's incredible. And it sort of goes back to what we talked about, my journey into law. And it was, I guess, running away or going away from something and then it sort of comes and finds you later in some way or you find it and then it's such a nice fit because Mm. you realize you know that's sort of your life's work or going to be your life's work and that's incredible and I think there's the some of my favorite novels for example you know Les Mis Mm. is one of my favorite novels and it has always stuck in my mind because of the power of redemption and Mm the concept of justice and how everyone has the ability to change. And I think that's really heavily imbued in law as well and also sentencing and why we have certain ideas or conceptions of you know, someone who's done time is allowed to have a second chance. Although in reality, there's still a lot of work yeah. to be done in that area. Yeah. And I could really see that from sort of my time working at the homeless law clinic, which mm. is called Justice Connect in Melbourne. And it was sort of seeing that how the law often comes into the same realm with people who have really bad luck or just really unfortunate circumstances a lot of the time. Like they may not have people who really supported them as a kid and then they sort of fall foul of lots of different things. Mm. And it's fascinating to see 
and very empowering when you can actually see how practice can actually help make the way a bit easier. Yeah. I think that's the thing that I've found genuinely rewarding in law. So in the homeless yeah. clinic, how would it actually work? You'd have clients who were homeless? Yeah, so basically homelessness is classed not just as actually living on the street, but if you're at risk of being kicked out of your tenancy or mm. you're living in very precarious situation at home, with yeah. even with family, mm. there's domestic violence or things like that, you are considered within the category of homelessness or mm. being homeless. So essentially anyone who had needed legal help could go to this clinic. And essentially what happened was I was working in a private law firm and we would have to do a certain number of hours, sort of a year for this clinic. And I actually found it really rewarding because when you work in sort of big law, you see a very small section of a very big case and you don't really get the perspective of the whole thing. Yeah. While working for the homeless clinic, you actually felt like you saw everything, but you also had a really personal relationship with your client. Mm. And that was really, really nice because you could get to talk about, you know, how you could help them and not everything you could help out with, because most of the time we realized how important social workers were. Mm. Actually, they were more important than the lawyers, to be honest. And they were the ones who helped their clients get to meetings, court hearings, and all those things, mm. and really just help them out. And you realize that you know, solutions are often multifactorial. I think lawyers, we often think, oh, we're here to solve the we're problem. We're here to and solve the problem. Actually, sometimes it causes more of a problem. <laughs> so then yeah. you're just like, wait, why are we here? Yeah. So anyway, but it was really fascinating. I mean, the two major types of cases that we did were things like infringement. So where mm. someone doesn't have a home, they're sleeping in their car and they get a fine because wow. you're not car yeah. in Korea. And then traveling on public transport without a valid ticket mm. using hallways without having an electronic car tag. So things like that. Mm. And then the second group of cases that would do would be notices to vacate public or private rental properties. Mm. And that's where we sort of looked at things like the Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities, which is like a very Victorian thing, as you would know. Yes. It doesn't really exist in many, many places. But I think one example or one case that really stuck in my mind was this incredible client who just had the worst luck and she loved her children but had these in like you know, tens of thousands of dollars in infringements because she was actually using the toll roads to drop her kids off at school so she'd travel from one side of victoria to the other side and she'll rack up lots and lots of fines oh my goodness. and she was really trying to do the right thing mm. and it got so bad to the point i think there was you know, it's hard and you have, where you rack up a certain amount of fines, a sheriff can actually come and arrest you. So it was incredible to try and help and realize that sometimes people fall through the cracks and they just need to have a leg up and just get on with their life. And I think the good news was that we managed to appeal all of them, wow. um, which meant that no more sheriff, no more fines and Mm. it was fair in the circumstances yeah. so that wow, really is a big case that, yeah I worked with another lawyer on this so mm. the, but that was a massive win and yeah there would be some mental health element to these cases yeah always like what we found generally for I would say 90% of cases we got yeah. clients were always grappling with other problems in their yeah. life and that was often just circumstances. They often had a very rough childhood and turned to substance abuse, you know, looked to other things, alcohol, mm. or well, all sorts of things. And mental health was almost a guaranteed. Yeah. So that was something that I think took us out of our ivory towers mm. because obviously law school is practiced in such a bubble yeah. that you don't think about these things as real people. They're just cases, but yeah. they're actually stories of real people's experiences mm. and then in practice like if you practice in big law you don't get to really see that so I was very fortunate in the sense that our law firm actually said well 
know, this is important and you need to also do it. But it's also a matter of policy that we need to do this sort of stuff. Mm. Actually, that reminds me of a legal clinic case that I had of a hoarder who had received a demolition notice because obviously she had massive mental health issues. Wow. She had hoarded so much of furniture and she had, I think, something like 12 cats. She had raw meat in the middle of the hallway and she was it was really bad and she would call me every day at the legal clinic just to have a chat but we had to work and that's when I realized with these kind of cases you have to work with a team you're not just there to address the demolition order or the fine or whatever it is you need social workers you need mental health professionals you need case workers it's the same in family law as well that's when I was more exposed to this concept of lawyers working with other professionals so in family law we often have mental health issues as well so you have to work with counselors psychologists child specialists Yeah, which is, I think, definitely the way to go because it's lawyers provide one solution. I think sometimes we think we provide all the solutions, but we're just one piece of the pie. Yeah, definitely. And I think you empower your practice when you realize that you actually need a team. You can't do it all yourself. Yeah. But yeah, that's Mm, really insightful. I've never thought about that as much. So good Um, that you helped that lady. I'm so impacted by that story. Yeah. I don't know. She sticks in my mind. A lot, yes. So Candice, a turning point for you was starting Legal Brew. Can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind Legal Brew? Perhaps the place to start is when I was in my final year of being in big law. I'd moved to a law firm and unfortunately the hours were ginormous. Mm. So it was construction litigation and I loved, I loved, loved, loved the work and it was really, really interesting. But it got to the point where I was doing too much of it. And so, you know, you're sort of working 12 to 16 hours a day, flying to different cities in Australia and realizing that you can't do it all. You can't wake up at four in the morning to catch a cab, to go down to the airport and then do like another 14 hour day. And at the end, I think halfway through, I realized that was starting to fall apart. And that sort of came about through a series of really odd health issues, Mm. which I thought this can't be great. Just power along, please. And then Mm. I got to the end of that year and I was like, I'm literally dying. I need Mm. to leave like ASAP. So what happened was I decided to leave. And this was sort of like four years into practice. And I had a conversation where the people who were very close to me said, you have to leave, your health comes first. And I realized that was my health does come first. But unfortunately, when you talk to certain people in the profession, not all, it would be like, oh, don't leave. You can't have a gap in your career. Just like try and find the next thing as fast as possible. And I was like, well, look, I'm pretty damn burnt out. I don't think I'm, I have energy to look for the next My body can't step. take it. I mean, which body I can take I need to literally just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> crash, <laughs> crash and relax. I just got to crash and burn. I mean, I already burnt. <laughs> but anyway, I'm going to crash. So by the end of that year, I left without finding another job. And that was obviously, you were like, are you taking a big risk and blah, blah, blah. Mm. But like, that was the right thing I needed to do for myself. And yeah. I knew at my bones that I had to do it. And it's at those points in time that you really need a deep sense of personal conviction as to what your life purpose is and why you are working and what you're doing it for. Mm. And I knew that working those hours for not very much public good, in my opinion, you know, wasn't what I was going to spend my life on. And at that point when that sort of clicked and I realized that, I think that it really helped to have a support network, obviously, because your support network will tell you the the change they see when you were fine and when you were not. So sometimes you can't tell when you're in right in the middle of it that you're completely burnt out until you see it like months or years later. So I think that was the sort of catalyst for that. In my five months, I ended up traveling to see Singapore to see my grandmother and my aunt and hung out with them and they really took care of me I was I think I there were moments where I got really emotional about like how you can put all your focus on work and almost like forget about your family but not but they are the ones who very selflessly come in to Mm. sort of support you when you need it 
So that really stuck in my mind. And during that time, going back to travel in Europe, so that really sort of got a lot of new ideas in my head. I went Mm. to cafes, sat down, read a lot. And that was literally the first time I read anything in maybe the last, since I started my law degree, basically. So, you know, for seven years, I hadn't really picked up any sort of book other than a law book. And I was just like, oh my God, it's like this universe of books out there, which don't involve law. And I was sucked into, you know, in a good way. So that started making me think about, you know, from my experience, because I knew a couple of friends who were in that same position. They had been burnt out. I caught up with a friend who literally had heart palpitations after working a serious number of hours and she went to a doctor and the doctor was like, you got to stop. You got to just stop what you're doing. And the realization that a lot of people were also in the same boat. Mm. So I was like, well, I need to start something that will tell these stories in not just about law, the substantive law, but also the practice side. And that's where legal rules sort of came about. I didn't really start it until a bit later because I then... My next role was working for a judge at the Supreme Court of Victoria. And as a judge's associate, you're not supposed to really have an opinion because that's representing your judge. So essentially, I waited until I finished that year before I started Legal Brew. And by that time, I was working in the major transport within the Department of Transport. So it's transport infrastructure and construction. Mm. And yeah, it's, it's been a journey. It's been a journey, Candice. That's so amazing. I love how you you shared about the burnout because that burnout is real and it's what a lot of lawyers go through. I think, yeah. And not many people acknowledge it. And I think also many people bubble along, not realizing that they're really operating at 50% capacity and they could be their 100% self, but because they're sort of just bubbling along but there hasn't been maybe a crisis moment that actually required them to sort of shift gears so yeah I guess that's what legal brew was about it was about sort of people over the years coming to me and telling me their stories about burnout Mm. and knowing about it amongst my peer groups but also a more general curiosity about the law because I think a lot of people think both of us in both our cases we're the first people in our families to do law So Mm. a lot of people kind of come to you and they're like, what is this? (laughs) You say, well, there's no, no mystery about this. And so, yeah, it was partly to demystify the whole practice of law as well. So good. And so you interview people, you write articles. What else do you do with Legal Brew? Yeah, write articles, interview people. I think really is just trying to get those stories out. So Mm. The things that I find really interesting from reading fiction, non-fiction, conceptions of justice, and some really incredible books out there that I would love lawyers to read as well. Because mm. I think when you just practice in one space, yeah. you don't realize there's actually a whole spectrum of stuff that's out there that can inform your thinking. Totally, um, yeah. Yeah, and also stories. Because when I was at the Supreme Court, we had the most interesting stories, which I thought hey, if someone actually knew about how interesting or hilarious some of these (laughs) people or these parties were, they would probably be more interested. And I think part of Legal Brew is trying to write stories about the law, which Mm. are really engaging, but also written in a very simple way. Yeah. So like some of the funny stories. Yeah, definitely. And some of the funny stories, I'm going to tell you some of them. One of them was a piece of land. It was commercial land that got sold twice because the (laughs) owner wanted 100,000 more. So he sold it twice? So he sold it twice to two parties, assuming that the first (gasps) agreement wasn't binding. Oh my goodness. And that was a very bad assumption because what then happened was that all three parties landed in court. Oh my goodness. And I'm pretty sure we did a back of the envelope like calculation of how much they would have all collectively spent. Yeah. We think they spent above a million dollars. In just for yeah. this legal case? For because... this legal case, because it went to the Supreme Court and then it went all the way to the Court of Appeal. Oh my which would have cost them like a lot of money. Barristers. A fees. bonkers amount of money. Yeah. <laughs> so what happened in the end? Who got the land? So the first person who tried to buy the land. Yeah, well, um, that's a natural assumption that if you buy a property that you would... It was oh, really just odd. Goodness. It was a really, really odd situation. 
And then we had other cases. Some of them are actually also quite sad. So two brothers who fought over a business mm. and it's a standard case of oppressive conduct under the Corporations Act. Anyway, the whole point is it's basically about when one partner tries to lock the other partner out of the business. Mm. And what ended up happening was that, and this was all over the news actually, they were sitting in court for this commercial case with us. And I recall one of the brothers, he was just furious at the other. But then what ended up happening was that it was then reported in the news that one brother had driven over the border to New South Wales and had killed the other brother and the mother with a gun. And so you sort of realize that there are actually all these stories which some of them are really sad as well and really, really tragic. Mm. And I think the way sometimes law is taught or studied is it doesn't give you that full color and you would obviously know it as well. Mm. Like law is a living creature and yes. it sort of affects people in many, many ways. Yes. So I think the more amusing examples of oppressive conduct would be one partner telling the other partner. And it often happens to go on a holiday, go on a holiday. <laughs> yes. and, then, and, then and then the partner goes on a holiday and then they come back and they're like, what Wait, happened? All the keys are changed. Wait, the pins changed on the bank account. Oh my God, I'm locked out. And then they all end up in court. And it's actually quite hilarious. Sorry, that's the hilarious side of, and then they they all end up like squabbling. And sorry, I I should have laughed at this, but some some of the details are pretty funny. No, but I think you made a really valid point because sometimes we study law in a static little bubble. And we are just like, we hear about all these old English cases, all these Australian cases, and then we don't really see the practical application. And that's why I think practical stories like this, even like someone coming to a law school to give a talk, what's happening in the courts and even like your blog, The Legal Brew. It's not a blog. It's much more than that. I see it as like a a movement (laughs) canvas. Which really demystifies the concept of law because we have all these preconceived ideas and it's just deconstructing all the preconceived ideas and showing law students and lawyers a different way. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So on the topic of mentors, do you have any mentors that you look up to either in law school or in life? Just everywhere. I can't really point to one. Yeah. Because I think there's so many places and sources of wisdom that you can get. I mean, for me, I've found books to be a great source of wisdom across time and across different people and ideas. So they're sort of like my own mentoring program. But also in real life, there's so many great lawyers I've worked with, you know, over time, whether it's the judge I worked for, who I really Mm. look up to and then. There's sort of, you know, lots of different senior lawyers who have taken me under their wing in the past. And like those people have just given me time without asking anything back. And I think Mm. that's a great spirit of mentorship across Mm. the profession, at least in Melbourne. Yeah. So I think I've been very fortunate in that sense. Mm. So not one person, but but I think a collection of many people over time. Yeah. And how about you, Sarah? I think that's the same for me, Candice, having multiple people in different spheres. Yeah. And for me, I think mentors from even church or my leaders at church, because it's, yeah. you don't necessarily need a law mentor to have the ideas for innovation and that can do attitude and entrepreneurship. So I think my mentors yeah. at church have always been like, you can do this, you can do it. And so when I had naysayers, I was always like, well, you know, I don't need to, to succumb to those negativity. I can always have a can-do attitude. So mentors from church, I guess my family and parents, they've been very profoundly influential in yeah. how I have approached life. And yeah. in terms of legal mentors, I had a really good boss, Dr. Anamatan, who was yeah. a good mentor to me. The first thing she said to me, actually, when she met me, she said, you know, I told her, Dr. Tan, I want to start my own law firm. And she was like, go for it. And I was like, wow. I mean, like not many people are so positive about these kind of things. And she said, you know, Sarah May, when people look at you, they might see someone who's very young and they might not think that you would be able to do that. But 
don't care about what people think about you. You yeah. let the results speak for themselves. And I think that really yeah. impacted me. And anyone I meet, like, oh, are you sure you started your own law firm? Like, you, you look so young. Uh, you look so happy. <laughs> Obviously, like, I'm happy Wait, it's just like, we're gonna, they're, they're just like, we've got to beat the happiness out of you. It's just like, whack it out. Like, we're literally just not. Why can't I be happy? Because I'm a lawyer. I just don't understand. But I think it's just this like, trying to figure me out, but not being able to. So she said, people might not be able to figure you out or understand where you're coming from. And that's okay. You let the result yeah. speak for itself. So she was a great mentor for me. Yeah. When you have someone who has your back and gives you that encouragement, it's really important mm. for your development as well. So good, yeah. Candice. So we're going to take a slightly different turn as we wrap up the episode. Yes. What do you do to decompress after a busy day at work? These days I try and go out for a run in the morning, which is so nice because I'm, um, to be honest, a really bad runner. So, <laughs> so I'm just like, this is so hard. I can't do it anymore. But and I'm still like, going to do wait, it because it's, still, it's good I remember that. I've been complaining so much about X person or like this difficult thing I have in my day or like, mm. why is this like this? And then I'm like, wait, I would prefer to have that than run five kilometers. So yes. that sort of reminds me almost like frequently that, yeah, running is one of those things where you're just like, you have to push through yeah. the difficulty and then try and live with being uncomfortable. Mm. And that's okay. Because I think in the past, you sort of like try and deal with it. But I think running really, really helps with that and also stress. So for me, how I decompress after, I mean, let's be honest, some days I just come home and I crash in front of the TV and just watch Netflix with a cup of chamomile tea. That's totally okay. Yeah. And yeah, you got to have those days. But sometimes I think exercise for me is quite important, like going for a walk. It's very calming and when I get the fresh air, it takes you away from your desk and away from your work. It's very good for your physical health, but also for your mental health and your well-being. So exercise for me and dancing. I love dancing. That's right. Um, you've always been a great dancer. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I remember well, that. At the moment, it's limited to TikTok videos and <laughs> something on my Spotify playlist, but it's fun. I just love the burst of energy. And for me, I start my day with reading the Bible. That's something that's very calming for me. Yeah. And for me, it's the best way to start off my day with a cup of tea and just starting it off on the right foot, not just like waking up and rushing into my day. And it's particularly important for you, I think, because, you know, running your law firm, you know, in your actual day, it's like all go. Yeah. And you sort of need to decompress and think about other things as well. And I try and yeah. do it even during the day. Like if I have a lull in a work day and I try and like sneak out for a coffee and just have a nice me time coffee. And it really is good like just to have half an hour, an hour where I just do something different or meet someone. Well, not now in COVID-19, but pre-COVID-19, just meeting someone <laughs> and someone who's not a lawyer, who's doing something completely different. I think that's a good way to like switch gears to something different. And also when you're doing the legal stuff, it can kind of feed in to your everyday life as well. So that's yeah, yeah. Um, not much of a reader. Yeah. I don't really read books, but you, you read heaps. Yeah. Yes. Yes, indeed. But yes, they're all incredible books out there. And I'm particularly interested in anything with a history slant mm. because I love that side. I think one book I can highly recommend is, is a book by Carol Dweck, um, who's a professor in the US and who wrote a book about old mindset. And it's really comparing the difference between growth mindset and fixed mindset, but also how that changes your outlook and your learning. And I think everyone should read it because when I read that, I realized there were parts of me that had a fixed mindset. I read that after actually on my five-month career break and mm. realized there were a lot of things I had to change, but also that allowed me to process why certain things happened or why things happened over and over again or, you know, people I've worked with who had growth mindsets and fixed mindsets, wow, which okay. I thought was fascinating. I'll put yeah. the link in our show notes so yeah. listeners can check it out. That would be great. So just to finish off, Candice, I thought we could have a last conversation on how we feel practice and expectations in the workplace, specifically in law, is changing. 
what do you see for the future for lawyers and law firms? Yes, I guess practice is changing. And, you know, the law has always been very iterative. So it's, you know, has got this long history and people in it are traditionally unwilling to change their ways mm. once they've done things a certain way. But now I think there's a, like a really new breed of lawyers that are coming up. You're one example. And, you know, you've been an incredible example to other people as to, you know, you don't have to be an old, stale and boring person <laughs> to actually have great results to your clients, have a great connection in a professional way. Mm. And also have a fulfilling career, like finding magic in your career mm. while doing things not the old way. Using technology and doing these podcasts, which are so important because I think lawyers also often are very introverted. So they don't really want to come out of the shell and like talk about stuff. Sometimes we get really like conservative talking about things that we've worked on. And mm. obviously there are privilege things and confidentiality but yeah. you can talk about have these conversations which I think are really important yeah so, so I think maybe a new is. breed of lawyers <laughs> it's true I wholeheartedly agree with you new breed of lawyers because as you said law is a very old institution the black letter law and because it's been operating that way for the longest time it's been functioning well for that category of lawyers and so what has happened with technology, with the millennials coming into the picture, yeah. with innovation and disruption, we are in the age of disruption, is that the traditional law firm structure is no longer going to be probably even in 10 years time the same at all. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think even though law firms and lawyers have been slow adopters of these things, they're going to be forced to adopt technology and different yeah. ways of doing things. Oh, um, definitely. Yeah. So that's how I see things yeah. changing. I totally agree with you. And also expectations on what this whole old school English idea of being deferential to your seniors. Yeah. Or even just, I still get letters addressed, attention, Sarah, dear sir. <laughs> I'm like, I am not sir. a dear sir. I'm not a sir. So I think that, yeah. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah, yes, sir. I, Sarah. I mean, seriously. <laughs> I, sorry. I can't. I, can't, I think sometimes people don't actually engage the brain. But anyway, no, that, that was a very snide comment for me. <laughs> um, We're not here to like, but, yeah. But I, it's the reality that I often get attention, Sarah, dear sir. And I am not a sir. I'm a female. Yeah. So I once asked an older lawyer in court, why did you write me a letter and say, dear sir? And he was like, no, but it's the English concept of sir means means madam as well i'm like no it's not which, which sure. sorry which 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 universe um <laughs> but that was a common issue when i was working at the court as an associate you get calls from parties or different people but often lawyers and they would say oh you know would his honor and i'm like no 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 mm -hmm. it's her honor mm -hmm. and i think there was also that concept practitioners are male and that's not true so yeah it's fascinating in Singapore, we have more female practitioners than male. So it's like, yeah, and I think the same in Australia. It's, yeah. So the way I see it is just gender norms. I mean, like I was listening to a podcast the other day and a woman was talking about how judges wouldn't give her leave to appear before them because she wore a skirt back in the day in Australia. Oh, wow. So yeah, I, think I think obviously I've heard that one. Yeah, things are changing, definitely. And also this ageist concept that even though you're young, you have to go through this hierarchy and pecking order. It's no longer going to be the case because we have very young entrepreneurs who are running their own businesses. And this seems to be more and more of a common theme and is going to yeah. be increasingly so. So I feel like that's how the future of law firms is going to be. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Wow, that was a great chat. It was. Thank you so much, Candice, for joining us on the show today. And thank you for having me, Sarah. It's, it's been an amazing chat. So I hope your listeners will get something out of it. I'm sure they will. And yeah. Candice, before we leave, how can listeners reach out to you? Well, I think the best way is to go to visit the Legal Brew blog. So that's www.legalbrew, in one word, .com.au. And yeah, just check out the posts. I've written a couple posts on COVID. But also I've started a new series called Brew Basics, which oh, is really talking about, so the first post was about law school 
to sort of demystify, you know, what it means to go to law school and what you've learned. But we'll cover all sorts of things like case law and like how do you cite cases and what's wow. a court hierarchy. Wonderful. Yeah, things like that. So that's the new series. Okay, so I'll put the links in the show notes so listeners can reach out to you via The Legal Brew. Woohoo! Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Candice. Have okay. a good one. Bye. You too. Take care.